Welcome to Our Global Campus, Engage the World Through Illinois podcast series, a product of the International Programs Team within the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. This podcast features the international and intercultural experiences of students and professionals who dare to explore life on the other side of their cultural assumptions. Each episode unpacks the complexities that often attend the journey of finding one's place in the world. Hi, GLP. It's Colette here, Colette Schley from the Social Justice Education Committee, and I'm here with Professor Johnson, an assistant professor here at the University of Illinois of Natural Resources and Environmental Sciences. I'm very excited to have her here. Anything you'd like to start with? Thanks for having me, and I'm excited to talk to you today about environmental justice and some of the research that I do. Yeah, she has done a lot of extensive projects overseas, and I have a couple questions. So I'd like to start with the basics with environmental justice. How would you define it in your own words? So in my research and my scholarship, I define environmental justice primarily in terms of equity. So having equitable access to natural resources, the environment, to land, and thinking about equity both in terms of making sure that people have access to the things they need, whether that is water, clean environments, clean air, but also equity in terms of who gets exposed to the bad things. So in terms of pollution, where to sites, toxic waste, these kinds of things, right? Who gets the majority of the good stuff and who gets the majority of the bad stuff? So thinking about those distributive ideas, but also in terms of who gets recognized as needing access to some of these resources or needing access to cleaner and safer spaces and who has voice to make changes either in the, within the state or within communities. So thinking about justice in terms of on a full range of who has equitable access to safe spaces or away from dangerous places, who gets recognized and who has power and voice. Mm -hmm. So going off of who has power and voice, how do you think here at the University of Illinois, who are the people that you think could be taking better initiative to address environmental justice issues, if that's even something that should be on their radar? Or what are steps that we ourselves as students can be taking to really be more involved in this type of issue? Well, it's definitely something that I think everyone can do a better job just even knowing something about it, especially living in a place like Champaign. So I teach social justice and environment, NRES 224. And every year we do a class or two just on the history of Illinois and environmental justice in Illinois. So Chicago is an incredibly important place for environmental justice. The quote unquote mother of environmental justice comes out of Chicago from Chicago South Side, Hazel Johnson. And even Champaign itself, Right. The the kind of if you look back at the history of Champagne, who came here, who migrated here. Right. It was on the path of the Great Migration out of the South after the Civil War. And so a lot of people don't realize. Right. That history of redlining. Right. Deciding who gets to live where. Spatial patterns of how even Champaign-Urbana was settled. Right. Very, very divided in terms of race. And so in terms of a lot of the equity and distribution of environmental goods and bads. Right. If you look at 
south of University Road, um, those populations tend to be whiter, have greater access to environmental amenities, parks, and everyone north of kind of university, it's much more communities of color. There's a lot more industry. There's a lot more inequitable access in terms of, right, who's exposed to environmental burdens or bads. And so even just knowing more about the history of where the university is situated, its history of racial segregation and how that affects environmental issues is, I think, even just a really important first step in thinking about what could possibly be done now or in the future. Yeah, I completely agree. That's definitely, I think, what GLP tries to do is to create that mindset that can maybe lead to action and change. And I think all of us can definitely be doing more for that. Uh, So you do a lot of research. And this, I guess, a little bit more of a personal question. But what inspired you to take this route of studying environmental sciences? And um, I know you got a doctorate from Duke on environmental science. Did you ever have like a moment where or it's like a story or something that you're like, oh, I want to learn more about this. I really want to explore this topic and essentially become an expert about environmental justice and social justice. So I did not start out studying this. I was a conservation biologist. So I have a a master's degree in conservation biology Mm -hmm. from Columbia. And so I was much more concerned about issues of biodiversity and biodiversity loss and saving wild things and wild places. And so just random chance and the path that I took after graduating with my master's. I ended up in Afghanistan and doing biodiversity conservation in Afghanistan. So at the time, that was in 2007, it was considered post-conflict with air quotes. It was never really Mm post-conflict, but that's what we all pretended (laughs) that it was post-conflict. And so, right, I worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society and people kept asking me, why are you here? Right? Why? And we were concerned about things like protected areas, creating new protected areas, the snow leopard, the bighorn argali sheep, right? You know, saving some of those biodiverse areas in Afghanistan that nobody had studied essentially since the 70s with the invasion of the Soviets. And so, right, but in, you know, at the time 2007, we have a an intense humanitarian crisis, issues of gender, conflict, ongoing conflict It's geopolitical and people are like, why are we doing biodiversity conservation in Afghanistan? And so I think that was the question that was like, why am I here? Right? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And so thinking about the connections between people and environments and nobody thought it was important to have access to green spaces or wilderness or thinking about species preservation in a conflict zone. And yet those things are all things that are critical for survival, for livelihood. And they also just bring us kind of psychological joy and benefits. And so thinking about those connections are what kind of launched me onto more of a social science track and looking at how people interact with the environment, why environmental conservation or preservation or sustainability is important and why it matters to people. I think that's a great shift. And I think also as a culture, we're kind of making that shift because I feel like in history, no one has really thought about the environment and people together. It was more how does the environment serve us as a society? How can we exploit its resources? And I think as a culture, we are moving 
more towards how can we coexist with the environment and treating it kind of like as a unity in itself. And I think that's really interesting. But right now in my social justice education committee, we've been reading a book called Toxic Communities, Environmental Racism and Residential Mobility by Dorsha E. Taylor. And we've just been studying a lot of different legal cases, scandals, if you will. And there's always been a reoccurring issue of plaintiffs being dismissed because not having enough proof of racial discrimination and things just kind of being swept under the rug and not being able to really prove the underlying intentions of corporations. So in your view, how does legislation need to change and to ensure that even if corporations are acting on the basis of their own financial interest, they're still held accountable? That's a tough question. So I think this is a really important question or debate in environmental justice right now where different groups, environmental justice groups, have different kinds of ideas about what is the path forward. So, for example, there's an environmental justice scholar named David Pello who wrote in 2016, I'm going to forget the name of the paper, but it's like essentially how Black Lives Matter is an environmental justice challenge. And so, and Laura Pulido as well, she's at the University of Oregon, right? These scholars kind of look at the history of environmental justice and critique it because their argument is that environmental justice groups and practitioners and advocates are essentially looking to government or the state for change. And yet government and the state is the set of institutions that is generally the cause of a lot of environmental injustice. And so their question is, how can you look for solutions to an entity that is part of the problem? Whereas, right, you have other kind of more mainstream environmental justice groups and activists who say, you have to look to the state that's our main kind of unit of political organization. And so that is what is going to deliver ultimately whatever kind of change that we are pursuing. And so this is a real intense question at the moment. So the Biden administration has made environmental justice kind of a central policy piece. There was news he just recently created an environmental justice. Um, I don't know if it's a committee or a permanent committee in the White House, but there are those who are who see this as a real win for trying to get justice and equity around environmental issues into mainstream policy and politics. And others say you're just you're being incorporated into the belly of the beast and you're just going to become a part of the problem because this is centered around a way of life that's inherently not about sustainability or environmental justice. And so how this gets reconciled, I, I think this is a moment for the environmental justice community that people are thinking about these issues. And it'll be interesting to see how it moves forward, especially in the next election with how much Biden has advocated for environmental justice and what will happen to that as we move to the next administration, whether it's Biden or not. Yeah. How would you think Biden has delivered on his promises? Do you think that he did enough? Did he have enough time to even implement enough change um, in your view? Again, another tough question because he's one person and yes, he has, you know, his administration and his his administration's policies. But right, this is the problem with government and the state is it's it's built on institutions that have been evolving over the the life of the United States itself. And so as much as you want to prioritize something like environmental justice, you have to deal with the legacies of the policies and laws that already exist. So in terms of going back to your observation 
conversation about kind of corporations getting off the hook, well, a lot of that is about was there an intent to racially discriminate against this group of people by exposing them to environmental burdens or toxins? And right. And so there's a there's a huge kind of onus on showing intent to discriminate against. And if you can't show that, then there's no legal recourse for you. And so it's if you think about it in terms of like a big, long, like a Navy ship, you know, Biden can start to try and turn the ship. But there's a whole host of institutions and policies and norms behind it that it even if you could turn it all the way, it takes a really, really, really long time. And how successful he will be, we probably won't see that until many years in the future. Yeah. So environmental justice, I mean, it's going to take as much time to unravel as it did to kind of implement is what I'm hearing. Like it's yeah. So I guess that's important for future elections, even if Biden isn't reelected, that it's several administrations that continue to implement those types of changes for us to see the results. Um, So now I'm going to move on a little bit to your own research. So with insecure landscapes, you investigated how global environmental initiatives produce human insecurity and injustice. And I think that was really interesting, especially from GLP. I mean, we're very global centric. We're made of people from all over the world. I would like to know how, yeah, how does global environmental initiatives actually produce more injustice? Because, Mm -hmm. I mean... I feel a little bit targeted as a part of GLP. I feel like we might be a part of the problem if global (laughs) initiatives are creating more injustice. So so this is my favorite subject of all time. And this is what I say. So I think about things in terms of institutions and institutional change. So institutions are the kind of social rules and norms that structure how we live in the world. And so I've studied in Afghanistan and South Sudan and Ghana and Sierra Leone the United States, Colombia, right? If you go to all of these places, there are remarkable similarities in terms of how the environment is governed, what kind of rules and policies and norms are in play. And so my understanding of this is that this kind of global governance or understanding of the environment and how to govern or manage it came around in the 1970s when Europe and the United States had their kind of environmental awakening with the first kind of movements for Earth Day. And there was a global meeting at the UN on environment. And so with this kind of environmental awakening, all of a sudden Europe and the United States came up and they, you know, they were like, we know how to manage environment and govern environment. And so all of these practices, environmental impact assessments, right, environmental laws, even the structures like environmental protection agencies that govern pollution, toxics, right? They basically like threw these models out over the world and everyone's like, oh, this is how we govern the environment now. And so whatever injustices are embedded in those kinds of ideas, which of course there are injustices because they're coming from unjust societies that have long histories of racial discrimination, (laughs) environmental injustice, right? Whatever injustices existed, they get embedded in those institutions and then they are distributed all over the world as the kind of model of good governance that all the countries should follow. And so when you start to study these things and study the models, you start to see the same kind of issues unfurl as these things are implemented on the ground. The the least powerful, the most vulnerable groups often are not recognized. They don't have voice. They're often exposed to the most kind of environmental burdens. 
And the most powerful often get the most voice, they get the most benefits, whether that's natural resources, right, extraction, if you're talking about oil or precious minerals or gold, um, or if you're talking about even biodiversity conservation. So where protected areas are put and who gets to benefit from them versus who is kept out of them. And so you start to see these kind of patterns unfold in similar ways in contexts that you would otherwise think should be very different. Yeah, it's almost they're trying to solve the problem with the same means that they did to create the problem. Yeah, or you just kind of export the same problems kind of all over. So and no policy or system of government is ever perfect. But I think there's a particular danger when an institution, a policy, a law, an organization that's created in a specific context for a specific thing is taken as the model of, of governance and, you know, taken to a very different context and, and put in place. And so when things inevitably don't go well, what the United States and Europe have done to places like Ghana or Afghanistan or Sierra Leone, it's like, well, obviously you all just don't know how to govern and you're just backwards and, you know, you're underdeveloped and you just, I mean, we need lots of capacity building and training. And I think a central point of my research is a lot of these countries are implementing the rules as they're supposed to be implementing. And the kind of outcomes we see are just the outcomes that are you know, the result of specific kinds of policies and environmental laws that are everywhere. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that maybe like the approach that Europe and the United States is taking doesn't work for every country, clearly. It, it definitely does not. And the most important point about environmental justice is that justice is inherently local and context dependent. And it depends on the people who are in play, the power dynamics between those different groups. And so if you want a quote unquote just outcome, which as people in general, we are really, really good at pointing out injustice, but we have a really hard time deciding amongst ourselves what is just. And so you can have a situation and, you know, four different people and they'll all say it's either just or unjust for different reasons. And so this is what you know, democratic dialogue is about is figuring out the most just way to be given kind of different perspectives within a specific context. And so a lot of the critique of these kind of global models of governance is that things are inherently local. And it's really important to keep that local focus in order to not reproduce these kinds of global dynamics. Yeah. So I actually used to live in Paris. And mm -hmm. I remember when there was the I forgot what year it was, but the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm -hmm. and I remember everyone. I remember my classroom. We had like a huge talk about it. And they were talking about, oh, how the world is really evolving and how we're addressing all these different issues. And what I'm hearing is it's just kind of not a show, but what was meant to come out of it hasn't really produced any results and we need to be working on smaller scales. Like maybe global conventions aren't the way to go. Oh, I mean, if I could solve this question for you, I would um, be able to solve climate change, right? So again, it depends on who you ask. Justice and injustice has been a primary sticking point in global climate negotiations for as long as the UN Convention on Climate Change has been around, right? This And this is especially pertinent between Global North and Global South countries, where the countries that have contributed the least to climate change are facing the biggest kind of threat 
threat from climate change, but also they have the most cost in order to try and adapt and or mitigate contributions to climate change. And so sticking points have always been around, especially between the United States and BRIC countries. So China, Brazil, India, who gets to continue polluting, how much. And so countries like China and Brazil are like, well, you all got to develop using these carbon intensive methods. And so we should be able to do that, too. It's unjust to stop us from emitting um, greenhouse gas pollution because that's how you developed and that's how we should be able to develop. Too. And the United States, who has never been the best global player in climate change negotiations, is like, no, if we stop, you stop. Right. And so that those historical dimensions and notions of what is just have been a, a massive sticking point in climate negotiations. And so Paris was so celebrated because these countries kept getting together and no one could break the impasse. And so finally, the Paris negotiators were just like, OK, everyone's just going to come up with their own plans of how to mitigate climate change and we're just going to stick to it. And the problem with that is, and especially with global negotiations, is you can't hold anyone to those commitments. And so it's really, really hard to make those kinds of mitigation strategies and policies work. And so countries just haven't stuck to it. And so for that reason, a lot of people are like, well, you have to move to more local levels, countries, cities, states, right? Illinois and California are huge sites of climate change policy in the United States. But given the scale of climate change, you really need global action. So it's a continued <laughs> conundrum that we have not been able to solve yet. Yeah. The more you talk about it, the bigger the problem seems. Yeah. It is definitely the most complex, right? People talk about how complex the kind of environmental science is behind climate change, but the social science of getting different countries at different levels, right, facing different vulnerabilities and costs and benefits to agree to pursue some sort of policy change, the complexity behind that is probably equal to or greater than the complexities we face in the environmental science. Yeah, that's a really, really big, it like gets scary when you really talk about it. I'm just like the organizational skills, like we just don't have that capacity and there's no, I mean, we have the UN, but that's not, I mean, it's not sovereign over any country really. Mm -hmm. But lastly, I know you did do some research on environmental impact assessments, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to hear from your perspective. Do you think that there should be any improvements, or how would you say that they need to improve to help more communities receive just outcomes, like in the Dakota Access Pipeline case? So in my opinion, environmental impact assessments are not intended to be social justice tools. Um, they are check the box type activities that make sure that whatever industrial activity or project is happening, that it's not too destructive. And so this comes back to the question of, do you use the tools at your disposal within the state to try and make change? Or do you have to work outside the system and go rogue? So there have been, especially in Latin American context, there have been, there's been a lot of work on trying to use environmental impact assessments as a tool to stop really destructive projects in local communities, like hydropower, dams, some wind farms, and mining especially. But but environmental impact assessments, from my perspective, they're not intended 
to stop things from happening. They're intended to make sure that they're not overly destructive. And as long as a company can show that it has tried to, if there is a site of cultural importance in the way, maybe they reroute around it. Or if they're doing some sort of practice that they could could be more sustainable, right? Maybe they add some technology. But nowhere in there is it like, if you meet all of the standards that we say you have to meet and, right, you jump through the hoops and like all your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed, you'll get the permit. Like we're not going to stop the project. And so I think that is a really hard thing for activists to face. And I've heard a lot of kind of regulators talk about this. The regulatory process is really intended for these projects to advance in the most environmentally sustainable way and just way that they can. But that doesn't always or even most of the time give activists the kinds of outcomes that they want. So what good are environmental impact assessments? Well, (laughs) again, it depends on your perspective. So they kind of mitigate the damage, Mm -hmm. but they don't address those types of projects as a problem to begin with. Right. It's not like... Fundamentally, the Dakota Access Pipeline is a problem and we don't want it built. Regulators are like, that's too bad, right? They're meeting their environmental requirements. I mean, they didn't meet their environmental or social or cultural requirements in this case, which happens all of the time. But even if they did, it's not the intent of that process to like have a conversation about the ethics of building a pipeline. It's like, well, they met the regulatory threshold and therefore it will advance or it will not advance because they didn't meet the regulatory threshold. It's not a question about kind of normative opinions on what should and shouldn't exist. So it's almost like a cop out. It's almost like an excuse. Well, not an excuse. It's more of a way to look like you are helping the environment. And from their perspective, they probably do think so. But there's like a disconnect between what regulators believe is environmental justice and what environmental justice activists believe is just. Regulators would say that they're giving you the cleanest, most technologically advanced, most culturally sensitive project that they can give you. And that's what the environmental impact assessment and that process is intended to do. I think the tool that we have now, given the kind of cultural and social context that we're in, where people are really starting to rethink, do we want another oil pipeline? Do we want more fracking? Do we want to extract natural gas or oil? Or do we want this mining project? Those kinds of questions, right? That wasn't really the kind of initial intent. It was just like, how can we make this environmentally safer? And instead of saying, oh, wow, there's kind of a new cultural awakening about what is and is not appropriate, and maybe we need new tools to be able to kind of negotiate that process, people are trying to take the environmental impact assessment and retool it in that way. And I think you're only always going to be disappointed when that happens, because in my opinion, that's just not what it's for. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Um, I would say going back to your question about kind of what individuals can do or the university, learning more. I mean, even the history of the university itself, the the land that it stands on, going deeper than land acknowledgement statements and really understanding how the university came to be, what its role was, and using the resources at 
students or faculty or administrators disposal to engage more with the communities. If you are interested in environmental justice, there are many environmental injustices going on in the vicinity. And so one thing that before the pandemic I was trying to do was to use IC, the student funds for sustainability initiatives. Those have historically been kind of confined to improving sustainability on campus. And so one of the things that we were trying to do was to get IC to expand the funding parameters to be able to address environmental injustice in the community at large. And so kind of expanding the notion of what campus is to include Champaign-Urbana. And so I think, you know, making those kinds of connections between a university that is still relatively privileged and a community that still faces a lot of injustice that is in many ways tied directly to the university would be one way to engage in environmental justice and and sustainability and in ways that kind of have a direct impact. Thank you so, so much for your advice and your time. We hope that maybe some GLP students will be taking your class next semester to complement their coursework in our program. Have a great rest of your day and maybe we can talk again soon. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining our podcast today. Remember to subscribe and tune in each month as we elevate diverse voices and experiences across our global campus.